5, and we're actually going to go verses 1 through 12. So we're going to look at the verses from last week because they set up the couple verses we're going to really focus on this week. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, the beginning of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it says this. Um, and I, I said, and I said, I really was supposed to write a shorter sermon than this. I kind of went a little longer, but the good news is I forgot my reading glasses, so I might not be able to even see what's happening in the next couple of minutes here. And at that point, it may go real quick. So uh, it says, I believe it says this in Matthew five, verses one through twelve. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak, and he taught them, saying, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed." Are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against uh, you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under a bushel basket. Put it on the lampstand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. So I'm going to confess that I find myself in a strange place uh, as a minister. Um, It is my job to be a public witness to this object of our faith, right? I am literally a professional Christian, which is weird in and of itself. (laughs) However, there's another layer of awkwardness uh, for me, and it may not be true of every minister, but it's true of me. On average, if I'm honest, I'm not very comfortable uh, with most of the public displays of Christianity that I see out there in the world. I am paid to be a public Christian, but a lot of those public displays make me uncomfortable. Most of the time, when I read in the news about what a pastor has said or what Christian celebrities have said or done or politicians who claim the faith, it usually makes me cringe. It's not just that I disagree with their theology, although often I do. It's just that there's something about the public display that often feels very suspect to me. Um, This last week, and I can't remember if it was in the Wednesday night Bible study or if it was in a group I was meeting with, but uh, the new pastor, Jennifer, uh, from this church, uh, I hope you get to know soon. She's great. Um, (laughs) She asked everyone in the room, like, have you driven up 49? And on 49, there's this catfish house, and there's a huge cross, right? And she was talking about it, and everyone in the room laughed like you just did because all of us have driven up 49 and seen it. In fact, part of me was almost jealous that she got to experience it for the first time because I feel like there's just a moment that all of us have when we see that. Um, and it's, a, it's obviously, it's a huge display, right? And I am not questioning uh, the people who put it up there in the sense of I'm sure they're very nice and they're sincere in their faith, but I'm suspect, right? I see it, and my first thought is not, wow, somebody's really trying to call attention to Jesus. My first thought, cynical, yes, I might be, is someone's trying to sling some fish 
Again, maybe I'm too cynical, but I get suspect of that stuff. But in fairness, I'm also suspect of any of my own displays of public faith as well, right? Uh, anytime I'm asked, and it's been a lot in the last couple of years, my job at the foundation has kind of made me uh, the professional uh, invocation guy for uh, events in town. Uh, I've, I'm, yeah, good thing I took that prayer class in seminary, right? Um, but anytime I'm asked to go and be the public Christian and give an invocation somewhere or do something like that, I feel a little bit strange about it, if I'm honest with you. I feel a little sheepish. I do it. Uh, I try to do, do it the best that I can. I try to uh, speak uh, in ways that sh- God should be spoken of. But I feel a little bit strange about it when I'm asked to do it. In fact, I avoided that kind of thing for a long time. Um, I, again, not good, I have a hard time inviting people to this church. It feels weird for me to invite people to the church. I want you to. And I want to do it, but it feels weird because I feel like I'm saying, hey, you should come hear me talk for a while. And it just feels a little gross. <laughs> like, like I, need more, I need more audience members for the eloquence that I'm going to bequeath upon everybody, right? I feel strange about it. It feels a little bit self-serving. You really should hear me talk more. Sounds creepy to me when it comes out of my mouth. And I feel like I've got good reason for this, right? After all, Jesus pretty clearly teaches us not to be like those people who just put on a public face for their faith, right? Don't be like those who give money publicly so everyone can see how generous they are. Don't pray elaborate prayers for the sake of your uh, spiritual fans out there, right? Don't be that guy. Don't be that girl. And I think I've internalized that to a degree where all public displays now feel a little bit strange to me. And then you have texts like today, following the Beatitudes, which we talked about last week. And if you weren't here, uh, go back and listen uh, to that conversation. That's not a conversation. It's a monologue. It was me talking. No one was talking back. But you can go back and listen. You should hear me talk more, again, is what I'm saying. (laughs) We have texts like today that follow the Beatitudes, right? Jesus just finished describing this new kingdom, this new world that he's building, this new way of living that blesses those that no one else blesses. This upside-down world that he's initiating and calls people to that is based in God's unconditional love, a kingdom that will fulfill all the laws with this one simple but eternally difficult one, love. So he lays this out, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, right? And then he goes on to say to this community that you are the salt of the earth. That was kind of a strange saying to us. Salt was an important thing back then, even more so than it is to us today. It was valuable. Uh, it was, they needed it for day-to-day living. It was a preservative. It kind of changed the world's history once people discovered it. And he says to us, you are to be the salt of the earth. In other words, you are to be a preservative of a world that is in decay. You are to live in such a way that the beauty and complexity of this world's flavors are preserved and brought to the surface because you are here. You should enhance the world right now. Make it easier to stomach for those who are most hungry, right? It's a beautiful image. And then he goes on from salt to light. He tells us we are the light. And I start to get that discomfort again. You are the light of the world. You shouldn't hide that light. Let your light shine before all of man. Something inside of me recoils from that. Something inside of me wants to give that Heisman stiff arm to that idea. 
Because I don't want any of that stuff that I mentioned earlier, right? I don't want to be one of those look-at-me kind of Christians. I don't want to be one of those people that marches Jesus out for their own agenda. And it's always this text that's cited by folks who are doing that. They always talk about this verse. Though I don't think that's what Jesus is advocating for here at all. So let's be honest. Much of public faith, much of public Christianity is about using Jesus as a spotlight for me. It's using Jesus as a spotlight for me. It's not about holding a light up for others to see God. It's about holding God up so that others see us in a different light. And we should go ahead and set that aside because, you know, yuck, theologically speaking. But with that said, Jesus says here very clearly, we are supposed to be the light of the world. To live and to love in such a way that we stand in total contrast to the darkness in this world. Right? Because there is no confusing dark for light. Darkness is not different thing from light. Darkness is the absence of light. Light always only casts out darkness by its very existence in a space. There's no confusing them. And so we, it seems, should remain entirely distinguishable from the kingdoms of this world. And if we can't delineate between Christ's church and the world around it, this is problematic. That's not a very good light. And I know what that meant for many of us. I know what it meant for me growing up. What it meant for me being the light meant keeping all the rules really well. We don't drink, we don't smoke, we don't cuss, we don't sleep around, we don't hang out with people that do. Now we're the light. We keep these rules and that's how we contrast ourselves with the unwashed masses out there. Right? But clearly Christ is not talking about this and Christ is not satisfied with that approach. In fact, his harshest words are reserved for those with that mindset. He clashes with those who best kept the rules yet managed not to love or care for the same people that the world was leaving out as well. Jesus has, in fact, little time for those who keep the rules but leave their neighbors in a ditch. Rather, it says here that the world should be able to see the good things that we are doing and in seeing the good things we are doing, glorify God. I know that term glorify is this weird churchy theological word. To glorify means to magnify, like to put a magnifying glass to something. It means to magnify, to make illustrious, to make renowned. In other words, we are the light to the extent that the God who is love becomes easier to see and more believable because of how we are acting towards each other. We are the light to the extent that the God who is love becomes easier to see and believe in because of how we are acting towards each other. It hinges on that phrase, seeing our good works. It's about how we live in this world. Not seeing increasingly larger programs or monuments. Not hearing our increasingly louder proclamations of holiness and righteousness. Not hearing our increasing condemnations of a world that's going to hell in a handbasket. They should look at how we love each other and the light should turn on. They should see the way we treat everyone around us and feel and sense something holy. They should see the way we live, and it should be a magnifying glass to a God of unconditional love. The way we work in the world should be a means by which the world can see everything 
more clearly, especially its creator. We are the light of the world. We do not use God as a way to shine light upon ourselves, but neither do we keep the light covered up altogether. Just because public faith is done so poorly so often doesn't mean we go private with it. In fact, I would argue um, that the response to bad public faith is not privatized faith, but good public faith. In fact, faith in Christ is never private. It's very personal, but it's never private. It always starts close and immediately moves outward into the world. It is incarnate. It is by nature a public faith. It isn't about our glorification. We should not be shy or secretive about our love for and service to our neighbors or why that love exists in the first place. Just because faith is done publicly so poorly so often doesn't mean that we should shut up about it. Just because we are embarrassed of much of what is passing for quote-unquote Christian today doesn't mean we surrender the field. We should publicly enact the love of Christ with attribution whenever we can. Not to gather a crowd for ourselves, uh, because honestly, uh, history has shown that the more faithfully we do this, uh, a lot of times the less fans you make. People prefer the kind of public faith that makes no actual demands of them, as it turns out. But that's not us. We are the salt of this earth. We are the light of this world. We love because we were first loved, without condition, as we were. And love always gets incarnate. Love always casts light. It always moves out, and it always goes public. Not only is there nothing wrong with this, not only should we not feel weird about this, but it is what we are here to do. God is not here to shine a light on us, but today we have the call, the privilege to love so wildly that God can't stay hidden in this world anymore. Let's pray. God, we are, we are grateful for a love um, that is both incarnate and unconditional. God, our prayer is that every person in this room might know that they are loved without condition, that there's nothing they can do to make you love them more or less than you do right now. They already have all of your love. You, are already, uh, you already find them uh, to be beloved children of yours. But Lord, may we not uh, just let that love sit. May we uh, do as it says in the Bible, complete that love by acting on it. May we be the light of this world. May we love each other in such a way that the world can see and believe in the God that is love. May we love so wildly in this world that the lights turn on. God, we ask all of this in your name. Amen.